grad student. Happy December. It is finally here. New episodes of the podcast not recorded in spring of 2022, but it is the first episode of the month, which means it is time to shout out our podcast patrons who have big podcast energy and up. Reminder that the people who get a shout out for this podcast are supporting on Patreon for $5 or more a month. What does this go to? Uh, having the podcast running, having a website, transcription services, being able to schedule for social media, literally everything. So the people who support this podcast, it's not a small thing. It's a big thing. If you want to join these people, you can check out patreon.com slash deargradstudent. So the folks I want to give a shout out to today are William Oda, Vikram Baliga, Victoria Heinrich, Ryan Science, Jeremy Gloger, my mom, Davis Bourne, Brittany Hockey, and special shout out to podcast fellow Brianna Williams. I am also happy to announce that if you are looking for just a single time donation, you can now find your grad student on Buy Me a Coffee. Now, Buy Me a Coffee is similar to Patreon, but again, only a one time donation. And for everybody who donates on Buy Me a Coffee, I will give you a shout out on the next podcast episode. You can check out buymeacoffee.com slash dear grad student. I am also so happy to announce that thanks for the help from the Dear Grad Student team, especially William Oda and Aubrey Tingler, the Patreon has officially been updated, renovated. It's new. Who is she? I don't know her. Now available on Patreon, depending on your level of support. We have messages of support. We have book previews for those of you who are like, oh my God, Alana, you're writing a book? Yes, it's smutty. For the most expensive tier, you can get previews of my book. All tiers are going to have availability to do a Dear Grad Student writing group. This is not supposed to be anything exclusive. It's just like, even if you did $1 a month, all it is is just a community of people who all like the podcast and kind of get it and we're going to put together a monthly writing session. I'm also going to do video breakdowns and summary of the content I consume per month, so you'll see little previews of that on Reels and on TikTok, but if you really want a breakdown of how I feel about certain books and all of the opinions I have, which all of you know are heavy, that'll be available on Patreon as well. We're also looking at game nights. We're looking at holiday cards. We're even thinking about watching a Browns game on stream and watching me freak out for two hours. Really, the possibilities are endless, and all of these updates are on the Patreon now. Lastly, 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 my team member, William Oda, has told me to set a big goal for the Patreon. Now, why has Will done this? Well, the podcast is not breaking even currently, which is not your fault at all. I'm poor because of grad school. This is a, you know, systemic problem, not me. But I would really love to have more folks in the Patreon community who we can interact with, hang out with, and so that we can, you know, maybe start paying my editor. Um, so I am looking to get... 30 patrons. We're at 15 right now. My goal is 30 by Valentine's Day. We got a couple months. So if you want to be part of the new 15 people joining the Patreon, again, patreon.com slash deargradstudent. Now, enough about me. I'm so excited to finally have a new episode for everybody. Today's episode is with a podcast patron, Victoria Heinrich. And so let's get to today's episode. Today's episode is a day in the life of fourth year PhD candidate who's really a sixth year MD PhD student, Victoria Heinrich. Listeners, welcome back to your favorite grad school podcast, Dear Grad Student, the podcast where grad students can come together to celebrate, commiserate, and support one another through this long and difficult journey. I'm Alana. I'm a sixth-year doctoral candidate and your host, 
and I'm joined today by a fourth-year PhD candidate who's really a sixth-year MD-PhD student studying the gut-lung axis and contributions of the gut microbiome to obesity-associated asthma, Victoria Heinrich. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you. I'm excited to be here. I'm excited to have you because you've also been a podcast patron and everybody knows that it warms my heart when I get to meet you in the flesh over Zoom. So hi. Hi. (laughs) Well, why don't we go ahead and let people know where they can find you on social media. So go ahead and let the folks know where you're at. Sure. I am on Twitter at VA underscore Heinrich. That's H-E-I-N-R-I-C-H. I'm not really active there as much as I am on Instagram. So you can also find me on Instagram and that's at Victoria, V-I-C-T-O-R-I-A dot A dot Heinrich, H-E-I-N-R-I-C-H. Perfect. And that will be all linked down below. I love that you're like, I'm not as active on Twitter because I think we're witnessing like the downfall of academic Twitter, which I'm like very begrudgingly going through because Twitter is where the podcast like gets most of its audience. Strangely enough, last night, one of my friends, I was at an engagement party and one of her closest friends is like really big on Instagram and TikTok. And she was like, I'm going to help you with the podcast on Instagram. And I was like, I don't want to. I don't want to. But I do. Yeah. How do you? like get into Instagram? What's your secret? I just have lots of pictures of my kids and cats. And so I am more likely to have a picture, a cute picture than like a coherent thought to tweet into the void. So, oh, I feel like relatable. (laughs) So so I don't know. We're all supposed to join Mastodon now or wherever everyone's the exodus is going. But I know it's so stressful. I'm stressed. (laughs) I'm so sorry. Have you joined Mastodon? I have not. I feel like this is like showing my age as a somewhat mid older millennial. We're now like the social media platforms are just there's just too many to keep up with. Yeah. Listen, I'm turning 28 this year. We're not that far apart. Like I'm with you. I'm like, I don't want another one. You can't make me like I don't even have TikTok. No, I will lose my life. Like I can't get stuck in that hole. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. I have not joined TikTok yet either. And for my productivity, I don't think I should properly. Yeah. See, that's what I've been saying. Except now everybody's like, Alana, you know what would help the podcast? TikTok. And I'm like, Ah, like you're not wrong. (laughs) Okay. I think it's coming. Stay tuned, everybody who's listening, who's been like, Alana, make a TikTok. You win. But Victoria, why don't we go ahead and talk a little bit about what you do in grad school, your research background. As I always like to say, especially for day in the life episodes, I think it's really important to put people in their context, especially if you are an MD, PhD student, your context is going to be totally different than somebody else's just in terms of like where you're coming from and like what you're doing day to day and like your overall goals. You're in the PhD part of the MD-PhD thing, though. Is that right? That's correct. Wow. Okay. So yeah, tell me about your research and all that. Okay. Do you want me to tell you a little bit about how MD-PhD, like the timeline, how that works out? Yeah, actually do that first. Yeah. Yes. So, (laughs) okay. So my program is an MSTP. That means it's an NIH-funded MD-PhD program. And the way my program is structured is that I kind of like to describe it as a sandwich. You got your first two years of MD on at the beginning, and then your PhD in the middle, and then your last two years of MD at the end. Oh. So this is my sixth year. So I did <laughs> my first two years of medical school and now starting year four of graduate school. 
Wow. So is the middle of the sandwich, the PhD part, does that just go as long as it takes? Or is it like you have to do the sandwich part in four years or five years or something like that? It varies by the individual. Some people finish in three years. Ew, we hate them. (laughs) (laughs) Sometimes people like get a head start on research and work on it during the MD years. Mm. They are incredibly talented, productive people with great time management skills that I am not. Not relate. (laughs) I don't know. Sometimes people, it depends on like the project you get handed, as you know, Mm. like sometimes your PhD project, you get it and it's, you know, kind of ready to hit the ground running. And other times you kind of got to tinker and figure things out. And then towards the end where things actually start falling into place. Totally. So some people, yeah, some people take threes, most take four, and then a few take five. Mm -hmm. But, you know, it's really up to the individual. Usually around four years, they do kind of say, all right, it's time. It's time for you to wrap it up wrap it up you've got another two years of medical school after this plus Uh, how many years of residency so right come on let's try where are you then or like where's your dissertation at like how close so i sorry that's the worst question ever i'm so sorry when are you graduating it's okay i've been in like i've been in school forever so i'm totally used to people asking like are you still in school yes yes I've been in school my entire (laughs) life, but I probably will be for until I'm almost 40. I actually am meeting with my thesis committee very soon, but I have a couple of manuscripts in various stages of preparation. One's under review. I've got Mm. two others in preparation, one in kind of the planning stages. They all kind of loosely cover the aims I propose for my thesis dissertation. So my ideal is I'm going to write up everything I can write up in the next six to nine months here and then this summer hopefully defend and then with the MD PhD program there's kind of set entry points so you kind of have to like get Mm. the dissertation done defended in order to re-enter with the med school class so there's like a May re-entry point and there's a September re-entry point ah you kind of have to like hit that sweet spot yeah it's like yeah so you gotta you gotta get in yeah It's fascinating. That was my understanding. There was like a, there was a time far, far away in my past when I was like, I think it'd be a really good idea to do an MD PhD. And then I like almost passed out watching a nerve block. And I was like, ah, it's not a good idea. But I see that your research is like the gut, lung, axis, and microbiome. What specialty is that? I know that research can be different than like the medical specialty you might want to go into, but like, do you have an idea? So like what kind of residency that you might be aiming for or what field in medicine you want to practice? Like, what's your thing? The great thing about MD-PhD training is you actually get the PhD years to do what we call longitudinal clinical clerkships. Every week I spend a half day in clinic in my specialty of choice, working with a physician preceptor, seeing patients. So I get to kind of experience that specialty. Think about how that falls in line with my research interests and like further help my career development. So last year I did infectious diseases and that was really cool. What a time. And then, uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> seeing patients in the hospital during the peak Omicron wave, that was fun. Ugh. And then this year, I'm rotating with pulmonary medicine, seeing a lot of patients with COPD, asthma, and long COVID. And that kind of ties into the asthma part of it, whereas the infectious disease right. kind of tied into the microbiology components of my research. So, Oh, 
I was like thinking, I was like, oh, that was like a fun whatever. Like, no, no, microbiome and infectious disease. Like, like it's huge. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, very cool. I like both of them. So I don't know if I, it hasn't made me any more differentiated than I already am. Right, right. It sounds like you're like, yep, I still like exactly what I thought I liked. And I've done these things that are what I like. (laughs) That's nice, though, like having a sense of what you're interested in, because I think one of the biggest struggles in grad school can be like, I think I know what I like. But the thing that I like is this big of a circle and it needs to actually be this big of a circle. And I don't know how to like narrow because things are so interesting. I think that that is like the double edged sword of people in research is that we have so many curiosities and so many interests, but like actually our job is going to require us to narrow much more than I think any of us ever thought we would. Like there are so many avenues we can't explore. And I think that's not talked about very much. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I definitely have the issue where I always am thinking up side project ideas and I constantly have to be telling myself, no, you need to focus on the thesis part. It's like, it's so tempting to get excited by many exciting fields of science, but trying to keep those blinders on to keep yourself on the course. That's why I keep doing this. So that's like a classic line from my mentor. She's always like, are our blinders on? And I'm like, no, they are not. (laughs) So very relatable. Well, let's just dive a little bit more into what your daily life is like as a current in your, you know, PhD part of your MD PhD life. But what does your day to day life look like? Also, you're a mom. So that's going to look different than even my experience as well. So tell me a little bit about like your average day to day as a grad student. Yeah, I after like I submitted this idea for this episode, I was like, wait, like I don't really have an average day just because like <gasps> no, I love that having the dual degree. Like some days I'm in clinic, some days I'm all in the lab, some days I'm at home writing, and some days my kids are homesick and I'm yeah, I'm at home wiping nipply noses and tending to them. How about I run you through like a typical like day when I'm doing like a clinic day and then a typical day when I'm in yeah. lab. Yeah, yeah. Give me like a, a few typical weekdays. Sure. You can do a few. Sure. Have a few. Sounds good. <laughs> I have a set clinic day. I have it in the morning. Every mm-hmm. Wednesday morning I go in. And so that usually starts out. I leave my house really, really early to get to. I was just going to say, I was like, is it for rounds? Because that's at like six. Oh, oh, no, no. Thankfully, it's outpatient. So nice. We start at 830 typically which is really, really generous. I'm bracing myself for the return to medical school, especially with (laughs) the surgery rotations. But yeah, so I usually get into clinic a little bit before eight or around eight. Usually I've looked at the patient list beforehand so I know who's coming into clinic. I get in early, I review relevant things to pulmonary medicine, like, you know, interpretations of the lung function testing and things I know I might, preceptor might ask me on, I review that relevant information also because it's been four years since I was in medical school. So these are things like I in theory learned like four years ago, but now have to pull from the depths of my my memory if they're still there. Right. So I usually get a little early and then each patient appointment usually runs about 30 minutes. My um, preceptor, the attending physician will introduce me to the patient And I will meet with that patient one-on-one, get like a history, just like you would if you were the doctor does when you go to the clinic. And then I might do a brief physical, targeted physical exam, listen to heart and lungs. And then I go back out and I talk to my preceptor about, you know, 
what I saw, they give them a rundown of the history, what I observed on the physical exam, what I'm thinking, you know, if it's a new patient, what I'm thinking in terms of diagnosis, and then, you know, talk through the treatment plan with them. Wow. We usually see four to five patients each clinic session. And then usually one or two patients, I'll actually write up the medical notes. So I'll practice those skills as well. Mm. And these are all skills I'll need when I go back to medical school. So the idea is that you don't get rusty, you continue to hone these skills and think about them in the context of your career and practically, you know, staying up to date on on things. You know, it reminds me a lot of my time as when I was a clinical psych student, because for those of you listening, I'm no longer clinical, I hated it, but I would go to like these half essentially clinic days when I was the psych resident at different locations and it looked very similar. I would meet with the supervisor, we would talk about the person, I would go in and I would either like do the initial assessment on them or I would like do whatever relaxation treatment we were doing for pain management and then like write up the notes. And it's different because when you go back to med school, you're not in classes, you're like clinic full time. Is that yeah right? So I was doing like a half, it would be like half of my days would be clinical in some way and the other half like classes and research. So a little bit more blended at the same time, but very similar just in terms of like, I'm going to put on my clinic hat now and do that part. And then I'll take that hat off and I'll go do the research part. And it was just like, I had a few years of many hats. Yeah. Yeah. And having to do the pivot between those two different ways of thinking is tricky. Stressful. Terrible. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah. It can be. Yeah. I remember during so the first two years of medical school it's mostly didactic coursework so you're learning everything from the books but we do have like medical interviewing classes where you learn how to interview patients and I just remember it being like back when I was first learning these skills like when they would send me into see a patient it would be like the most terrifying thing like oh horrifying I was also like, they think that I'm in charge here, and that's weird. Yeah. Like, I would walk, I'd be like called ma'am, and I'd be like, I am 23. (laughs) Like, got the wrong girl. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, surely. It's strange, though. Yeah, it's like, you still feel like you're a kid, but it's like, surely, I'm not in charge. What do I know? That is exactly what it felt like, because coming right from undergrad, I literally was 23. But the first time I, like, worked in a clinic and was, like, seeing patients in a clinic, I was like, I am a fetus. Like, that's what I used to walk around saying. I was like, I am not even, like, I'm not even developed into, like, a baby in the womb. Like, I am a, like, tiny, I'm, like, cells. I was like, I don't know what I'm doing. I looked like a baby. Like, I was trying to, like, dress so adult so that people would take me seriously. And it was, like, it was kind of a whole thing. I am curious, though, what your other side of your day-to-day life would be like, which would be, like, more of the research side of things are you mostly like are you still collecting data for anything are you mostly in writing stages like what does that look like for you oh well it's in theory I should be in writing stages but as you know Uh, I see (laughs) as you know you know you can plan out beautiful experiments and then you get the data back and you're like well this doesn't all make sense. So I guess I have to do some more digging to come up with my narrative for this publication. Of course. So the first two and a half years of my PhD, I did a ton of mouse work. So we have obese asthmatic mice. 
And so we would feed them. Oh, God. Yeah, yeah. No, the the way I see it is like these mice live their best life. They like. Oh, uh, yeah. The mouse lifespan isn't that long to begin with. So they're probably outliving most of their peers in the wild. And then they just like eat basically mouse McDonald's for like for like 15 (laughs) weeks. And then we give them asthma over the course of a couple of weeks. Here's some asthma to go with your mouse McDonald's. Yeah, yeah. They get pretty sick. (laughs) They're not loving it. They're not loving it. (laughs) But... Uh, and then at the end, we put them on a, like a computer-controlled mouse ventilator to measure their lung function. Oh. Uh, yeah. And then they just go towards the lights. We give them <laughs> a, very, a, a very generous dose of pentobarbital. They just go towards the light and then they, they die peacefully. It sounds like you help them find the light and then yeah, they go towards yeah. it. Yeah. So, I mean, the only thing I do, because um, I'm a big animal lover, the only thing I do over the course of those 12 weeks, aside from the asthma... I collect stools. The first two and a half of nice. two and a half years of my grad school was a ton of like mouse stool collection, which is mm. you say you're a microbiome <laughs> research researcher. It sounds so glamorous, but it's like, no, I just collect a lot of poop. Yeah. Yeah. As somebody who does research with like psychology and immunology, the gut microbiome is like such it's not even up and coming anymore. Like it is now its own big field, but there's a ton of research out there just about how the gut microbiome not only impacts inflammation, which impacts literally everything, but also mental health. Like there was a few studies just looking at the microbiome of people with and without depression in humans and just some of those differences in whether it be vitamin deficiencies or different like bacterial or yeast growths or other fungi growths is like fascinating. And it would totally be a field that I would go into except poop. <laughs> I don't want to do poop. So I'd much rather do blood and I don't even like blood but at least blood doesn't smell like poop smells and I just yeah I'm yeah, not a poop girl I mean it's not terrible but you know well and I feel like mouse poops poop, yeah, yeah it's smaller it's actually like yeah yeah very very, very, very different, different. It's, not, it's not terrible but I I mean I've spent more time with mice and holding them over Eppendorf tubes to poop in than I'd like to like to admit. And I feel like this is my favorite. Like, this is what I love talking about on the podcast. It's like, oh, they're MD, PhD, but it's like, really, you spent years holding mice like over a tube to poop in. And I'm like, that is the best thing I've ever heard. Like, this is what we should be talking. Like, grad students, we're people too. Like, look at yeah. us. Like, I love that so much. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, the hard thing too with being when you're a PhD student, but you're also an MD, PhD student is halfway through your PhD. PhD, your med student peers that you started with all graduate. Mm. Like my, the people I started medical school with, they're physicians now. There's people that started med school after I do that treat my husband at the resident clinic Amazing. at our university. So it's like, what am I doing with my life? <laughs> you know, and then you've got people you started without there being, you know, real life doctors. But my, ta- you know, your that- time, my time will come. Oh, it definitely will. But I do think that that's like a really good point on like the mental block that that can kind of put up or like it can get in your head. You're like, oh, everyone's ahead of me. But like it, that's not lot like in reality what's going on. But I totally get that in a sense. And you probably feel this as well. Like in real life, all of my friends have big girl jobs or big boy jobs and they like make money and they like have these cool high rise apartments and they're like doing all these things. And I'm like, I make $20,000 a year and I can't make any more. <laughs> and I'm like still in grad school. Like I'm a sixth year. I'm going to be in it next year. And like, even as I think about postdoc, like what I'm currently planning in terms of postdoc funding is still going to be like NIH's 
like required postdoc salary, which is 55K or, you know, 45 to 55K depending, which is like nothing to laugh at, but like, I'm going to be a full ass PhD making less than like my brother made out of college. It messes with your head to be like, what am I doing (laughs) and why? For me, that's been one of the hardest parts of grad school is like that comparison game with like, man, I could have been, I don't know, making money. Yeah, no, definitely. Especially when you think about how many hours you spend working as, you know, even as a postdoc, when you break down like the hourly amount that you're making, you know, it's not exactly proportional to the years of training and, you know, expertise you're bringing to the table. But yeah, yeah. It's, there has been like a couple of ar- number of articles that came out in the last week about how uh, the academia is significantly losing talent to the biotech center because yep. they will pay for those oh skills. Oh my gosh, like a ton. They'll pay a lot. Like it is extremely, I don't even know the word for it, like extremely attractive offers. Like people are making a hundred or two hundred k. It's like, how do you not choose that over being still a cog in the machine in a low, you know, position in the power structure where no one appreciates you and you're overworked and you make no money? It's like, of course they're losing people. Like this should not be a confusion, you know. But hopefully, it just means we all start getting paid a little bit more. Yeah. Or like, I don't know, less abused. I am curious, though, you know, thinking about what some of your favorite parts about your program have been. I mean, obviously, there's some unglamorous sides, right? Because you're dealing with like mouse poop and you're dealing with the whole like mental everyone I started with has graduated thing. But what have been some of your best parts so far of grad school? Yes, maybe I'd frame it this way. Like many people, when I talk to them, when I say like, I had two kids during MD PhD training. They're like, oh my God, how would you do? How did you do that? Like, that is insane. But I think I would make the case that PhD training is actually a great time to have kids because you will never have this much flexibility in your life. And I think that has been one of the things I've enjoyed the most about PhD training is like the freedom to like within certain bounds to design your own project, the freedom to design how your day goes, you know? Yeah. So I think that has been that the freedom and like the independent thinking and like intellectual creativity I've been able to have in grad school. That is what I've enjoyed the most. If that answers your question. I know I love that answer so much because as somebody, right? So I'm like 27 and a half now, been with the same person for like eight, nine years. I've had that same thought about like, okay, not that it's like, okay, it's time for kids. So we should do the kids thing. But rather like I think about like mentally where I'm at with like, children. And in my head, I'm like, oh yeah, in 10 years when I'm 30. And then I'm like, nope, I'm 27. That's in less than three years. And I'm like, oh shit. Like all of a sudden I'm like, it's not like there's a clock, but like there is. And I'm like, I cannot imagine having a kid in grad school. And at the same time, all of my friends who have are like, this is the best time to do it because it's so flexible. And like specifically my program has like funded women through pregnancy, even like through them taking time off, they still fund them. Like they're really good about it. And at the same time, I'm like, would I die? Like, I think I would die. But then I'm like, am I really going to wait? And for what? I mean, it's like, it's very interesting. Like this has lately been on my mind just because I'm graduating in a year and a half. So all those life things that I've been like, I'm avoiding you are like coming back to be like, we're back. (laughs) And it's just, it's great to hear from someone who is in, I think what most people would consider like one of the most challenging grad type programs to be like, actually, this was a great time to have kids. I did it and I'm still killing it. Like I'm still doing the grad school thing. I'm going to be going back to med school. 
school and I was like able to have kids, obviously like you probably have a very supportive partner and like there's other factors that go into it, but it's kind of refreshing to hear like, I still get to be the badass I want to be academically because I think that's my biggest fear of like, all of this that I've been through, do I give it up if I have kids? Like, does it just like not matter anymore? And like, no, that's not what happens. But it can feel that way until you hear somebody else be like, this was the best time to do it. Yeah, it's really hard to kind of take that plunge and like really be like, this is kind of crazy, but I'm doing it. And so for me, it happened totally by accident. And I even feel that sentiment where you say like, you know, you're going to be 30. And if you're like 10 years later, when I'm 30, and it's like, oh, crap, that's actually a couple years later. (laughs) So soon. When I had my first child, I when I got pregnant, I was 25. But I felt like I was like a teen mom compared to like everyone else. If I got pregnant now, I'd be like, like, it's teen pregnancy. Yes, yes. I don't know if it's like because our generation was scared by like the teen mom series. But no, MTV did more for pregnancy prevention than any other fucking like any pregnancy prevention campaign I have ever seen in my life. Like you watch 16 and pregnant and suddenly I was like, sex who? Never seen a penis. I don't know them. Yeah. Like, no. Yeah. So yeah. So I was like, oh my God. I was like freaking out. I'm like, wait, I'm a 25 year old woman. I am a grown adult. Yes. You know, I was like, okay. It was very scary in the beginning, but as with most things in life, you learn to roll with the punches and, you know, it's never like a zero to 60 kind of situation where all of a sudden you're like one day you're living your life, doing your PhD thing. And then all of a sudden the next day you're rocking it. You're like super mom with, you know, doing the PhD and the mom thing. There's definitely this kind of period of adjustment and, you know, but things usually do come together. And I guess just like a little background on my story is so in MD PhD training, the first years of medical school, I found out at the end of my first year of medical school that my IUD had failed. So like I literally went in for an ultrasound. There was my IUD and then there was baby right next to it, which (gasps) I was on. Amazing. Terrifying. After the the Trump. Worst nightmare. This was after Trump was elected in 2016. So this was 2018. I was on a 10 year plan. I had like a five to 10 year plan going for me. I was like, yeah. As we do. You know, but sometimes life throws you a curveball and you just kind of, you just got to roll with it. And so I was like, well, here we go, I guess. (laughs) Happened a little earlier. I have to say how refreshing it is to talk to you because I'm pretty sure you're like somehow simultaneously like living my nightmare and my dream because I have always wanted to be a mom. But if I found out I was pregnant that way, I would be like, wake me up. Like, that's a joke. I would literally be like, if I were looking at an ultrasound at a literal baby next to an IUD, it, like, it would be a joke. I was like, this is a prank. Like, someone is joking. Like, I would, I want to be a mom, but what a fucking way to find a good lord. I mean, wow, talk about terrifying. Because, like, when you have an IUD, you think you're set. Yeah, yeah. You're like, I'm good. Like, yeah, I was like, it can't happen. I was like, they told me this is, like, the best thing you can get aside from sterilization. Yeah. So what else do you oh, do? Oh, God. But, yeah, so I spent oh. my entire second year of medical school pregnant. And then part of medical school and MD-PhD training is your second year of medical school, you take your step one of your medical licensing exam. So <gasps> I, right. I had my daughter in January and then 
like six weeks later, had to go into dedicated studying for this license. It oh, I thought you, were say you took it six. Weeks oh no! Later. Oh, I was like, fuck. oh no! I, I still, but I mean, I still had to keep up with medical school yeah, because you yeah. had to keep learning the things that you needed in order to take this exam. So it was like wow. I had a very sympathetic OB who was also an alum of my medical school who really, oh, really nice. vouched for me and got me in for an elective induction over a three-day weekend so I at least had a three-day weekend to recover from delivering and then oh my god I was had my daughter on a Saturday discharged from the hospital <sighs> on a Monday and then that next Tuesday I was doing classes you know virtually from home but you know you just like with the way the medical licensing exam scheduling worked and everything else trying I just had to keep going and right it's what you had to do but it's you know ideally in an ideal world you'd have maternity leave but I mean even if that had been offered to me it's like what do you do if you go on maternity leave no one's going to learn the things for you only you can do that so wow I when I say I could never, like, I I don't know if it's my ADHD, I couldn't, you, wow, good job. I don't know what else to say. That is incredible. I feel like I would perish. I, th- uh, I think you like, undersell yourself. You don't know what you're capable of until you're in there and have the adrenaline pushing you forward. So never, <laughs> don't so doubt yourself. We'll don't see. doubt yourself. <laughs> Here, you know, a few years from now, when I'm like giving birth, I'll like reach out to you. I'll be like, you're right. like I totally I handled it let's go back into your past a little bit because I mean here you are mom of two fourth year of your PhD in an MD PhD like program starting your 30s like let's go all the way back why grad school why MD PhD I suppose why medicine right like how did you get here what was the journey yeah that's a really good question sometimes I have to remind myself I was like why how did I end up here why the fuck am I here I did this to myself. What did I, what, how did, and then I like go back in it. Yeah. So um, I had always been interested in science and research. And when I was an undergraduate at University of Wisconsin, Madison, I got the research bug and did undergraduate research. And I worked in a lab where we looked at the development of novel antimicrobial agents to combat antibiotic resistance. And yeah, so it was really cool. Like we, I really liked organic chemistry, which I know is a bit controversial. I did too. I was, I just thought the structures were just so beautiful and so elegant. And it was like, I was fascinated by it. I, okay. I hated the lab component, but I would like love anything where it was like the equation. Cause I was like, it looks so like, look at the drawings. And I was like, and then you add a line here and then you take this branch. Like I could do that all day long, but then you get me in a lab and I'd be like, Ooh, I don't want to touch chemicals, but I loved the math and the science behind organic chemistry and loved it. Yeah. I'm a very, visual person. So I was drawn to that. So I ended up as an undergrad in a lab making antibiotic compounds, like make organic synthesis, like here we make our antibiotic candidates, and then we test them against like a whole wide range of bacteria. At one point, we were working on a project where we're sending them to Walter Reed to be tested against anthrax. And so that was very exciting. Oh, my God. (laughs) It's so cool. I love doing that. And I actually was really fortunate that I had one, a very supportive undergrad mentor. His name was Doug Weibel, and he 
was so welcoming and just such a warm person and so supportive. And then I also, what really pushed me forward is I had a really great grad student that I worked with. Her name was Katie Hurley. And she really helped me develop into a scientist. But oh, that's so beautiful. And just want to plug the people I have worked with that yes. they are so instrumental. Yeah. But I remember like having this mentor, like I want to be like Katie and be a grad student and... And so like, you know, that was all, that was on my trajectory. I was curious like about, you know, antibiotic resistance. Like why do we have this such this big problem of antibiotic resistance in the hospitals? So I got involved in infection control, volunteering for infection control with one of the hospitals. And what they kind of do is they monitor certain infections with antibiotic resistance of interest and trying to make sure that that spread does not continue through the hospital. Mm. Eventually, what pushed me in the MD-PhD trajectory was like, yes, I could come up with all these new antibiotics to be used in the hospital and clinics. But if no one's there to safeguard them, their use, what mm. is the point? You know, if I'm yeah. so I was like, I don't want to just make these antibiotics. I want to be the clinician in the hospital, making sure that we are being responsible with them and safeguarding these yes. valuable assets. That's so cool. Eventually, I found myself headed on the MD-PhD route. That is so, so cool. You know, I had like almost an opposite experience where, you know, I really was like, yeah, I want to be in the room, like with the client, like doing the therapy. Like I had a really similar, like, I want to be on the ground, like doing the hard, you know, with the people. And in my case, when I did that, I was like, oh, turns out, I was really curious about why people were ending up in the therapy room, like the mechanisms, like, what about your past? Like, what is it that is like going on that is like fueling all these things? But then like, I was not actually interested in like helping the change process, which was a shock to me. But I found out that I was actually more interested in the why and the behind the scenes and almost like in a preventative way. That's like kind of where I'm headed with aging, like not dealing with the forest fire, but like preventing the forest fire. It's just interesting. I kind of had the flip of like, at least I thought I wanted to like, you know, be on the ground with the, with the troops, but it just wasn't my thing. Very similar, like, thought process, at least initially, like I relate a lot. Yeah. And so do you have any regrets, whether it be how you ended up in grad school or just like anything that you've gone through? Like, is there anything that you regret that you feel like, man, other students should know X, Y, Z so that they don't have the same regret as me? Yeah, that's hard. I know. Sorry. I feel like, <laughs> I feel like you know, you can look back on your life and there's tons of things, you know, I would do differently. I guess now one of the things that I would do differently is when I applied to MD PhD programs is I had no idea what I was doing. Nice. Like it's like some small miracle that I got into an MD PhD program. We all feel um, that way, so honestly, I, right? Like how? Because I now mentor students who are applying to MD PhD programs and help them with like essay writing, writing personal statements. And I was like, I didn't, I had no one telling me how to do these things and didn't realize how much like strategy goes into that. But yeah, I think what I would have done is I would have found an MD PhD student mentor to help me through the application process. And maybe I wouldn't have suffered so much doing that. But yeah, so I guess my advice would be to find yourself a mentor and find mentors at multiple levels. Mm -hmm. Like I think a lot of people, when they think of a mentor, they think of someone like a PI 
which is great. PIs are great mentors, but they also, time is a scarce resource for them. So finding mentors at multiple levels, not just the PI, but maybe at the graduates. If you're undergrad, reach out to someone at the undergrad level. If you're grad students, look to your postdocs and other junior faculty and research assistant professors for advice and, you know, have multiple mentors. You know, this is some of my favorite advice because when I think about like what really got me to grad school, yes, like it was obviously the skills that like a professor, you know, working with me, like I was very lucky to have a professor who was like able to mentor me one-on-one, but like, I really feel like it was more of that sideways networking, like having other students who were either going through the same thing or had been through the same thing and could provide me advice. Like that was the most valuable thing because the other thing about PIs or about professors is to no fault of their own, they're also very disconnected from this process, especially anybody senior in their career, you know, what it took to get into grad school or what people are looking for in grad students is very, very different than when they were in this process or applying. You know, the environment was different. The the climate socially and culturally was different. Not to brag and say like, you know, hair flip, that's why this podcast is so valuable. But I do think that it's part of the reason that this podcast reaches people because everyone that I have on this podcast is like a normal person going through this. And I think that that's why I find it valuable is like, I see myself in every guest and I like have never felt less alone than when I'm like, oh my God, like they totally get it. This is just like that. Or Or when I have, you know, early professors or postdocs on the podcast, I'm like, oh my God, and they got through it. And like, look at the advice they're providing now. I mean, it's like, so the sense of community really cannot be overstated. Like it it cannot be said enough how valuable that is, not just on a personal level, but professionally to hear from other students who can give you that information. And I would say, especially grad students in your department, if you're currently an undergrad, or like you said, if you're currently a grad student, just like postdocs. I know not every lab has them, but that's why academic Twitter used to be valuable. I'm sure there are postdocs on Instagram. I don't know where they are, but I'm sure they're there. Go look for people with your experiences. I think that that is one of the most valuable resources we have. Yes, yes, exactly. And I think it's so great to have like feelings when you're going through hard things, like having those validated, like, because it's so it's so common that we then turn that against ourselves and be like, Oh, this is me. This is because I have XYZ or some kind of defect that I'm, you know, having such a hard time. But then when you reach out to people and be like, listen, you know, that's completely normal. It's so much less terrible of an experience when you know that this is normal. And also, I always like to tell people like, you know, things are finite. It's not going to be that way forever. Yes. For me, like when I was studying for my medical boards with a newborn, like it was really, really terrible. But I knew that this will pass. Right. I will make it through. This is not going to be my life forever. It was still hard, but you just felt like less despair about it. And it it made it more manageable to get through. Absolutely. I mean, I think I'm going through that, you know, as a sixth year, who's going to be a seventh year because I collect blood samples for my dissertation. So like that required in person. So COVID obviously slowed that down. I've had a very similar sentiment where I'm like, yes, I live in a place that like, it's not my favorite location and it's far away from family and, you know, grad school is X, Y, Z, but it's also going to end. There is actually like light at the end of the tunnel. Like this is going to end. And I think that's a big piece that I I really hope people, you know, remember it. And I don't know if I've said this so explicitly on the podcast, but I'm pretty sure that this podcast and just like having a sense of like, oh my God, I'm not crazy, like saved graduate school for me. Like I'm sure I would have still finished, but I really think there would have been 
been a lot more of, like you said, despair along the way. I think it would have been a lot more hopelessness. You know, it can't be overstated. Like we all need people. We all need validation and understanding that like this absolutely wild experience, you're not alone in it and you're not crazy for whatever you're going through. And like a lot of it is unfair and it does suck and it will end whether it be because you decide to leave or because the program and, you know, you graduate. But I do think looking at the time, we got to move on to final thoughts. So for anyone listening, final thoughts are going to be, you know, takeaways from the episode. Obviously, you and I, we talked about your past. We talked about your now. Being a mom, mouse poop, all the things. So what I want for this part of the episode is just to think about like takeaways or bullet points that you want listeners to remember from your episode. So what would be your final thoughts, Victoria? Sure. I'm always wanting to bring awareness to MD-PhD training that it is a career pathway. It exists. It's something you can do. I know for a lot of people, like the eight years component of the training can be very intimidating, but it goes by really fast. So I would just give a plug for MD-PhD training. If you really like medicine, but you really enjoy research and see yourself having a foot in the research lab and a foot in the clinic as your future career, consider MD-PhD training. The other point is don't wait till after grad school to live your life. It's just like really comments like once I do this, then I'll do that. But your life, your 20s, you know, it's a very short period of time. And you shouldn't feel like you need to hold yourself back before you need enjoy it. So so this is the segment where Victoria calls me out on my bullshit. (laughs) But we all do it. We all do it. We all do it. Yeah. And I think a lot of it too, is just like you have these self doubts about yourself. Like you think like, I couldn't do that. That's like a big grown up adult thing to do. But you can. And you know, it's going to be hard. And there'll be some periods of growth. But you'll be a stronger person at the end. So but yeah, don't wait till after grad school to live your life because you just get stuck in the cycle where you postpone it, postpone it, postpone it. So real. And you know, you only got one life to live. So basically YOLO. I would say that my final thought, I have two of them. My first one is, again, just like that sense of either community or understanding, like everything we were just talking about. I think that that is so crucial. And especially like when I think about MD, PhD, there are fewer people doing that kind of thing. Like med students can understand to a level, I can understand to a level, but only the people who are doing like that dual program are really going to get like what you've been through. So I think finding people who get it, finding people that, you know, you can get advice from or just vent to is so important. And then my other final thought would be like, honestly, the whole like things don't always go to plan, but like you're going to be okay. Whether that be like a wonderful failure on your IUD's part to like do its one job or <laughs> like whether it be, you know, some people right now are like they're losing their job or like their partner is losing their job while they live in grad school. It's like things are going to happen that are unexpected. And I think as grad students, as people that are like generally pretty organized, generally pretty highly motivated, generally pretty productive, it can be really tough when like the plan that we set out does not go the way we want it to go to like feel safe and secure and like calm. But that is what happens and life happens and we will be okay. And I feel like I'm like saying this to like convince myself. I'm like, it will be okay. Everything's fine. I'm fine and everything is okay and it's fine. Then it's fine. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I don't know if like so many people that 
are called to this profession are, you know, type A and relinquishing that control is so hard. But, you know, sometimes you just got to let go and see what happens. Just got to let go, friend. That's right. Well, why don't we go ahead and remind everybody listening where they can find you on social media. So where can they connect with you online? Yeah. So again, you can connect with me on Twitter. That's at BA underscore Heinrich. And also on Instagram at victoria.a.heinrich. Perfect. And of course, that will be linked down below. But Victoria, I just have to thank you once again for wanting to come on this podcast, for supporting the podcast on Patreon, for coming on an episode. I really appreciate it. I know that, you know, it's a Saturday morning and you're missing out time with your kids, but I really appreciate you being here today. Yeah, it was great talking. I'm glad I can share my story and I hope others find it helpful and feel free to reach out to me if you would like to chat. Absolutely. Yeah, definitely reach out. Well, Victoria, thank you for the millionth time for being a guest. If you are listening to this episode right now and you're looking for more ways to support the show, you can find me on Patreon at patreon.com slash deargradstudent. And you can keep the Dear Grad Student team caffeinated on Buy Me A Coffee, where you can make a one-time donation to keep us up and running at buymeacoffee.com slash deargradstudent. And listeners, thank you for continuing to listen to the podcast that I started during quarantine. I will talk to you all in a fortnight. Hashtag the fair thee well and have a good week. Look at you listening through the outro. I hope you loved this episode and are sticking around to hear the next. Share this podcast with literally everyone you know. In the meantime, you can find everything related to the podcast at DearGradStudent.com. You can follow the podcast on Twitter at DearGradStudent, on Instagram at DearGradStudentPod, and if you want to connect with me online, you can find me on Twitter at Alana underscore Gloger. That's E-L-A-N-A underscore G-L-O-G-E-R. You can support the podcast on Patreon at patreon.com slash deargradstudent or follow the link in the episode description. And merch! Who doesn't love merch? Podcast merch and more can be found at deargradstudent.com slash merch. If you loved what you heard today, please leave a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you find your other favorite shows. Today's episode was made possible by the Dear Grad Student team members, Coral Arroyo, William Oda, Aubrey Tingler, Vishal Thucker, and Nicole Coates. You can learn more about them at deargradstudent.com about. As a reminder, all resources and links mentioned in today's episode can be found in the description. And until next time... Warmest regards, best wishes, sincerely, Alana.